Support for the show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power the collaboration needed for teams to accomplish what would otherwise be impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software for everything from space exploration and green energy to delivering pizzas and podcasts. Whether you're a team of two, 200, or two million, Atlassian software is built to help keep you connected and moving together as one. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Welcome to a special series of the Prop G Pod. If you've been following us for the past uh, few years, then you hopefully registered that uh, we care deeply about changing the conversation around masculinity and failing young men. Uh, in fact, uh, we believe this is uh, a crisis and that uh, in some we are producing too many of what are the most dangerous and unproductive citizens in the world, and that is lonely, broke young men. Uh, why are we passionate about this? One, I relate to these young men. Uh, I was an unremarkable kid growing up in a single-parent household. My mother lived and died a secretary and could have easily come off the tracks. And as a matter of fact, did come off the tracks a couple times. And it was the generosity and vision of the University of California uh, taxpayers. And what saved me was the big warm hand of America and government, had it not been for the vision and generosity of the Regents of the University of California and California taxpayers, I just wouldn't be here right now speaking to you and have the opportunity to advocate for a group that I believe has fallen further faster than any group in recent history, specifically young men who are four times more likely to be addicted, three times more likely to kill themselves, 12 times more likely to be incarcerated. You've heard the stats before. Uh, I think this is an opportunity also to demonstrate that compassion is not a zero-sum game. Civil rights didn't hurt white people, gay marriage didn't hurt heteronormative marriage, and a conversation around men uh, is something that I think a lot of groups are engaged in. And who wants more economically and emotionally viable men? Women. And by far, with respect to this conversation, which I'll say has become a lot more positive over the last 24 or 36 months. Uh, as this conversation or this void was filled by some very unfortunate voices. And I think, understandably, a lot of people have a gag reflex when you start talking or advocating for young men. But by far, the cohort that has been most supportive of this conversation and us bringing up these issues, simply put, mothers. And it goes something like this. I have three kids, two daughters, one son. One daughter is at Penn. The other is in PR in Chicago. And my son is in the basement playing video games and vaping. There really is um, a crisis here. What is the single point of failure when a boy starts to come off the track? Simple, when he loses a male role model. And what it ends up, the research shows, is that when uh, the parents split up and you lose a male role model in a house of girls, the girls have similar outcomes. Uh, but it's much different when the boy loses a male role model, usually through divorce. As it ends up, the majority of research points to one thing, and that is boys are physically stronger, but girls are emotionally and mentally stronger. Over the past year, we've been asking our male guests how they think about masculinity and what it means to be a better father, husband, and partner. Being a man is to be 
a person that is in service to others and just ask yourself like how can you be in service and just ask yourself like how you can be a value to others there's a movement <laughs> of more awakened manhood that's emerging and it doesn't mean you can't be strong it doesn't mean that there's no role for men and for women and people in between it just means we've got to do a bit of a reset i mean i just try to model for them, you know, what a leader looks like, um, you know, what kindness and caring looks like. Sometimes you just have to be gentle. Just be gentle. The story that we tell about masculinity can be really dangerous. I think one, one of the things about masculinity which is different from femininity is that masculinity is, is, is seen as this kind of prize that's given to men. Like, you can be a man or you can not be a man. And there was an interesting study that was done a few years ago um, uh, over here in the UK where they asked men and women, what does it mean to be a man? And answers were like, uh, you've got to be a fighter, a winner, a provider, a protector. You've got to maintain mastery and control at all times. And if you fail to do any of these things, then you weren't a man, which I think is, that, that's a story about identity. It's a very toxic one. Over the next three weeks on Office Hours, we're answering your questions on all things masculinity, from gender dynamics and adolescent development to the psychological and societal challenges that men face. We're also bringing on a few guests to paint a better picture of how we ended up here and what we can do about it or where we should go. So with that, in today's episode, we're speaking with Christine Emba, a columnist at The Washington Post and author of Rethinking Sex, to set the scene of where masculinity stands today. Uh, the role that women play in redefining masculinity, as well as what current dating dynamics look like. Christine, where does this podcast find you? I'm in Washington, D.C. Is that where you live? You live in D.C.? I do. I'm sweet home. I didn't know that. Nice. So let's bust right into it. Your blockbuster essay, and I don't use that word lightly, for the Washington Post titled, Men Are Lost, Here's a Map Out of the Wilderness, that catalyzed a lot of conversation regarding men in crisis, specifically young men. From your reporting, like what surprised you? What what are the attributes or the reasons for men struggling so much that you don't think people fully understand? What set some context for why young men are struggling? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, first of all, I'll say that the first thing that surprised me in that essay was simply the response to it. Right now, it's reached over a million readers. Uh, we closed the comments at 10,000 comments. The number of people who have just reached out to me, men, parents, people from all over saying, oh, finally, someone is talking about this, I personally have found uh, pretty overwhelming, um, which makes me think that this, <laughs> this is a real problem that needs to be addressed. But, you know, context to the piece, I started thinking about this question of sort of what's going on with men, because as I said in the piece, just the men I saw around me were getting kind of weird, um, getting really into sort of these manosphere influencers, sort of trying on almost new, what felt like dress-up practices that seemed focused on shoring up their masculinity, either getting really into weightlifting or getting really into the alt-right or both perhaps, or just kind of disappearing from view, you know, spending all their time on the internet or maybe like watching porn and just not showing up. Um, and I looked at the statistics 
because, you know, there's this idea that, oh, no, American men are falling apart. The Republic is going to disintegrate has been a recurring theme in our public discourse. But the stats are really bearing out the idea that there has been a shift in how men feel about themselves and how they're acting in in our society. As women have surged ahead, you know, in the workplace and education, men are quite literally falling behind. So on, you know, when it comes to college graduation rates for every 100 women who receives a bachelor's degree, only 74 men do. And that number is falling. When it comes to people who are out of work or falling out of the labor market, the biggest drop in employment has been among men aged 25 to 34, which you would think is kind of prime working age. Um, But also when you talk to women, when I talk to my friends, when I think about my own dating life, there's a real and clear felt sense among women that the men who they thought would be their partners are just not there. Uh, I was thinking about you coming on the show and we've, you know, we've had kind of the Yodas of this issue on the show or most of them, I think. And I was trying to think, well, what what could we explore that would be different with Christine? And you wrote a book called Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. And what you just said about women, you know, where are all the good men is what I hear. Talk a little bit about the role of dating or the dynamic in dating and mating as it relates to this, I don't call it a crisis, but the fact that men are declining, if you will. Chris Williams calls it the high heels effect, that as women metaphorically get taller and taller and taller, men are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And women, uh, not all women, but a lot of women state that they won't date anyone shorter than them. We talk about mothers being concerned, parents being concerned, young men are obviously struggling. How do you think women perceive this issue? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I'll go back and give a little bit of context for the book you mentioned, um, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, is the title of my first book, which I started writing around the time of kind of the Me Too moment, crisis, revolution. And it was basically a look at whether, you know, the sexual revolution and the feminist movement had brought us to where we thought we were going to go, had delivered the results that we wanted. It was kind of a critique of our current sexual culture. And I told the story through, mainly through the lens of women, as I interviewed just a ton of women about their dissatisfactions with the current dating scene, with the sexual culture, with what was expected of them and what they couldn't expect. But, you know, I spoke to men about this too. And I would say that while women's stories really informed the book. You know, I talk about how consent isn't enough to be a good sexual ethic, how men and women are are actually different in their desires and how they want to form sexual relationships. Something that many women feel like a bad feminist or something for saying. I was struck by how the men I spoke to, again, interviewing for this book, seemed more kind of confused than anything else. Like they didn't know what they were supposed to do, what they were allowed to do to just talk to a woman. Increasingly, they seem to be socially falling behind. And I think that experience stuck with me and also pushed me towards thinking about the topic now. But when it comes to how this this high heel situation, that's such a great analogy, um, you know, is reflected in, in the dating market. 
I would say one place where you can see a really clear example is on college campuses and directly after college. You know, the gender balance on many universities is shifting to be really like a high number of women, sometimes up to sort of 70% women and 30% men. And this is not a great thing. My competitor publication, the New York Times, actually had a piece about this a couple of weeks ago about how many private colleges were kind of practicing sneak affirmative action to let men in because there just simply weren't enough men on campus to make it attractive. And you can think about how this plays out in a in a kind of relational stance. If women want to date men generally who are kind of at their level or honestly above it in some ways, the, the height analogy is one thing, but you can also think of it in terms of educational achievement, of career achievement, of financial stability and emotional stability. If there are, you know, 70 women and only 30 men, then a lot of women are left without a partner. And, you know, the men who are present suddenly have perhaps too many options to choose from. Too much opportunity, uh, yeah. Yeah, which makes the dynamic for mating and dating really skewed and unpleasant. And actually in that Times piece, you know, the young women who are interviewed kind of talk about how you know, they thought that there should be an empowering experience being at a university that has a surplus of women, where women feel confident talking in the classroom, where they have all these opportunities. But actually, when it came to finding partners, dating, sort of all the, the kind of outside life goals that one might achieve in college, they said they found the experience really humbling and kind of sad. Yeah, the term that I've heard that is sort of apt is this term of Porsche polygamy, that because of online dating where everyone has access to everyone, that the men who are in the top call it decile of attractiveness, get 60, 80, 90% of the opportunities, which doesn't encourage good behavior. And uh, I guess my question is, given that you kind of have written about the intersection or can talk about the intersection of mating or dating and sex and the crisis young men face, do you think that women expect or don't want men to be, I don't want to use the term aggressors, but the initiators of romantic contact? One of the things that I've observed in in conversation and sort of candid discussions with women, and actually you and I talked about this, Scott, and I mentioned you in the piece, is that a lot of women, I think, feel like they should want to date, you know, a feminist, a guy who treats them as their exact equal, you know, a sensitive, emotional guy, or, you know, they either they feel this or they feel like they should feel it to be sort of a good, young, modern, who's progressive, etc. But in their real lives, often, that's not quite what they want. I think that most women actually do want to be asked out, would appreciate, in fact, a guy, you know, taking them on a date and offering to to pay for drinks, sort of performing a little bit of a traditional masculinity, while, of course, you know, not being over-aggressive or overly sexually aggressive or, you know, rude or sort of a Neanderthal. But I think a lot of women still appreciate 
a guy playing that role, but it feels like a little bit anti-feminist, I think, to some women to say this. And then I think men get the the message that like, oh, well, women don't want me to walk up to them and approach them. Like it would be rude to talk to women in public. It would be rude to go up to someone at a bar. And so they don't. It just shocks me. And I'm curious if you have found this. Uh, I have a lot of women in my life that would be very open to being set up. And then they sort of under their breath in a d- different way to go, oh, and by the way, I really like alpha males. And maybe I'm looking for shadows where there aren't any, but don't you think there's some dissonance here between, and you said this a little bit, between what maybe people state they want and what they're actually attracted to? And I guess the question is, have women's desires, have their what they find attractive in a man actually evolved uh, over the 20 or 30 years? Because I find it's loosely still, you know, pretty similar to what it was 20 or 30 years ago. I think that, first of all, people's stated desires almost never match up with their actual desires. And that's a thing that sort of experts in dating and mating have have seen for years, right? People may say that like, oh, I want to date someone who's six feet tall and has a six pack and like works an X job. But then they meet someone who is five foot nine and cool. And has the right right pheromones. Yeah, Yeah. and it's fine. Um, And so I think sometimes both sides sort of deceive themselves by saying, well, I'll only go for this sort of person and then discount everyone else who might be a good match. And I think in our current moment, our reliance on the internet and dating apps in particular really facilitates this because it's super easy for both men and women to just set some sort of arbitrary standard that aligns with what they think they want and filter out everyone else when in fact the other people might be great. You know, my sense is there's a lot of things that younger men can do, take responsibility for their lives, try and better themselves, get out of the house, find a job, work out, put on a clean shirt, whatever it might be, join an organization. There's a lot we can do as a society, third spaces, vocational opportunities and training, empathy. What do you think women's role in this is? Do you think that women... And I'm, I want to be clear. I don't think I don't think anyone has a, an obligation to service anybody. Or, but what is the role of women in this in this problem, this issue? I do think that women would do well to be more honest uh, with themselves and with others about sort of what they want. Like it's interesting that these women who you talk to are still willing to say to you, albeit under their breath, like, "Oh, actually, I, I kind of go for this sort of alpha kind of guy." you know, then they're not lying to themselves or the guys that they date and they can sort of look for what they want. I also think that you mentioned third spaces. One of the real sort of failings of our current moment, and I think it's also affecting men and like leading or assisting in this sort of crisis of men, is that it's really easy to not go outside, not exist in real life, not talk to people, not talk to strangers. And I think for men who like actually want to meet someone, also just want to be sort of good men, good humans in the world, you have to be forced to get up, get dressed, like work out so that you look decent, work on your conversational skills, go out in the world and talk to people. And I think it's possible that women need to do that too get off the dating apps and like be open to meeting guys in, you know, maybe yeah, at a bar or in your kickball league or whatever. But then as I think about this, 
I, I think that most of the women I know are willing to do this and they're kind of just waiting <laughs> for the people to show up or for someone to talk to them. In the past, I think you would see women date down or settle in a major way. I also think everybody kind of settles in some way because you're never going to find like your twin, your perfect partner, and everyone should be realistic about that. But women would, you know, date guys who weren't a good fit or who didn't bring that much to the table because they didn't have any other options. You know, if they wanted economic security, um, if they wanted to start a family, they just had to have a guy to do that. And in this moment, they don't have to. Women are making their own money. They actually can have families themselves with artificial reproductive technology. And they don't have to settle for a guy who's not at their level. And I'm I'm not sure that I want to. I feel like a lot of conservatives are sort of trying to tell women that they need to get ready to date down and lower their standards. And I don't I don't know that I want to tell women to do that actually. But I think if this mismatch continues, a certain number of people will have to get comfortable with the idea of being on their own. And that's, that is a scary thing to contemplate and I'm not really sure what the advice is for that. And then actually, I will say one thought about what women maybe can do to help. Over the past, I would say, decade or two decades, there's been a tendency to talk and act as though men are kind of garbage. Like the phrase, men are trash, became just like a running joke in some progressive circles. Even in, you know, sort of professional spaces, we talk a lot about toxic masculinity and how men can be less toxic. And there's not a lot of empathy there for men from not all women but some women and even women who like love men if they're kind of joking constantly about how much men suck all the time that is probably going to influence how they view the men in their lives um how easy they find it to be in a relationship how they treat the men around them and i think being sort of aware of our both our internal and our external messaging towards men and about men because at the end of the day right the sexes rise and fall together. I say this a lot. If men are trash, like women aren't going to have a great time either. So kind of, we need to help each other here. I think this is the kind of the, uh, I don't know, the big, the big issue of our generation. But anyways, Christine Emba is a columnist at the Washington Post where she writes about ideas and society for the opinion section. Christine is the author of Rethinking Sex, A Provocation. She joins us from Washington, D.C. Congratulations on that landmark article. I heard from so many people. I'm so glad you reached out to me. Yeah. Thank you so much for being interviewed for it. All right, Christine. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye. We'll take one quick break before we answer a few listener questions on relationships, porn, and masculinity. Stay with us. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Welcome back. Let's bust into some questions. Question number one. Hello, Scott. My name is Gerardo. I live in Sydney, Australia, although I am originally from Bogota, Colombia. I moved to Australia 11 years ago, and I am now married to an Australian woman. We have a beautiful, smart, half-Colombian, half-Aussie girl. When I became a father almost four years ago, I started thinking about how to raise a kind, caring, smart woman. My biggest fear, however, was and still is how to make sure she makes the right decision when it comes to selecting a life partner. I know that will be years from now, but I want to make sure she, I give her the right tools starting early. Learning about this topic from multiple sources led me to create an interest in how boys are being raised today. I very quickly went down the rabbit hole of the current issue with boys and men and how much they're struggling, to the point where I've now started running an online men's group I called Menlightenment, and I find this extremely fulfilling. Throughout this journey, however, I've received, let's call it questioning, primarily from women about how much light I am shining on men in a world where women are still struggling with inequality. This questioning becomes even stronger when people realize I have a daughter. So here is my question for you. How do you think I should go about continuing to focus on helping men, but keeping women in mind? I often tell people that raising kind, caring, and compassionate boys is one of the best gifts we can give girls. Any ideas? Thank you. Gerardo, um, I think you're ahead of the game with a one-year-old thinking about these questions. You're clearly very thoughtful, and I would argue that at this point, you just want to enjoy having a little girl and being really supportive of your partner and wrestle with these issues. I think you have a few years to figure this out. So, I mean, a few things. One, anyone who doesn't understand you advocating for men and has a gag reflex about it, you know, doesn't recognize that compassion and empathy are not zero-sum games. Civil rights didn't hurt white people. Gay marriage didn't hurt heteronormative marriage. And you advocating for men doesn't make you, you know, decrease the likelihood that your little girl isn't going to grow up to be a very confident woman. In terms of building confidence, I think this is, gosh, this is sort of the age-old question in parenting. And there's a lot of, the word you keep hearing is mattering, that you want your kid to know that he or she matters regardless of whether or not they're achieving, you know, in the top, if they're heads list or whether or not they're a great athlete. I think in terms of modeling how to be um, a good man or, you know, a good person, being affectionate, supportive, thoughtful, treating your partner well, I think kids do mimic or model after the parents in terms of what they see in that dynamic uh, with respect to the relationship. There is some evidence that when the mother works, the daughter is much more likely to work herself. So I've never bought into this notion. I think a lot of people decide that one partner, usually a woman, should stay at home, that it's good for the kids. I can understand the inclination, but the research shows that especially girls go on to have greater employment prospects and make more money when they grow up in a household where mom is working. So I don't, it sounds to me like you're sort of ahead of the game. And um, uh, your sec, your, I think your question was, how do you think I should go about continuing to focus on helping men but keeping women in mind? You know, uh, the one thing I can guarantee you will not work is trying to advise your daughter on what types of men to date or not date. I think that is likely to backfire in a pretty severe way. And to a certain extent, we as parents like to think that we're engineers, that we engineer this sheep. It doesn't. It comes to you. We're we're shepherds. We get to decide whether sheep grazes, point in the right direction, decide what food it eats. But 
you know, we'd like to think because we're a narcissistic species that we have more impact on the child than we probably do. I do believe a bad parent can screw up a good kid, but I'm not sure a good parent can save a bad kid. Um, I think a lot of it is you do your best, you create a loving support atmosphere for them, you model the types of behavior that you hope your boy and your girl uh, mimic, and you just do your best. But anyways, thanks for the question. Question number two. Hi, Scott. My name is Jake, and I live in Nashville working in the supply chain for a major retailer. I have found your material at just the right time as a younger parent of two under four with a few years left in my 30s. My new worry, like many, has been directed to parenting and setting my kids up for a successful and safe youth with the looming pros and cons of AI right around the corner. I have a two-pronged question that I do not think is discussed enough around the lack of emotional skills, respect, empathy, and affection that my generation of men faces when it comes to relationships and sexuality. I'm a millennial that hit adolescence during an explosive era of a sexualized MTV, Howard Stern, American Pie, etc., and when dial-up internet pornography went online. How much do you think this has had an effect on so many millennial males soon to be out of your figure-it-out stage? More importantly, what are your thoughts on the risks AI poses relating to pornography and the extremely malleable male adolescent mind? Thanks for all that you do. All the best. Uh, Jake from Nashville, thanks for the question. This is an interesting topic. And a lot of people, including myself, believe that porn is probably the largest unsupervised experiment on young men in the history of our, you know, of our generation. And that's because the majority of academics don't want to be known as professor porn. And if you think about it, I think other than search, it's the second most trafficked content um, online. It's dramatic how much time people spend on porn. Richard Reeves from uh, the Brookings Institute and now his own foundation uh, in my interview with him said that he wasn't as worried about porn as I was. He thought it was a small number of people consuming most of the porn. But uh, I think about half of men say they've intentionally sought out porn this week. About one in eight men um, would describe themselves as addicted to pornography. It's much lower for women. Only about one in six women said they intentionally use pornography in the past week. I don't know how you unintentionally use pornography, maybe just run across it. And only one in three of them versus uh, one in eight described themselves as addicted to porn. I think it's a more complicated issue, but I think that uh, to tell a young person not to engage in porn is somewhat unrealistic. And uh, what I tell young men that I coach is that uh, you want to modulate. Now, what do I mean by that? A certain key attribute of finding a relationship, of finding someone, establishing a relationship such that you can, amongst other things, have sex, is the desire for sex. And anything that dampens that desire means it's less likely that you are going to develop the skills and take the risks such that you can establish your own relationship and have your own sex. And I believe that leads to more and more young men living in or living what they think is a reasonable facsimile of life vis-a-vis -vis digital means, whether it's trading on Coinbase or Robinhood or believing they have friends in some, you know, deep Discord group or on Reddit and believing that they can get uh, the sexual satisfaction they need with porn and why engage in the hassle and the expense and the rejection of trying to find somebody um, to have a relationship and sex with. Uh, when I was at UCLA, a big part of the reason I went on campus and probably a big part of the reason I graduated 
was the hope that I would meet someone, establish a relationship, and get to have sex with that person. The prospect of sex is very powerful for young men. And I also think it's a good thing. I think it's a good motivator. It teaches you to put on a shirt. It teaches you to work out. It teaches you to be kind. It teaches you to try and be funny and engaging. It, te it teaches you to be more risk aggressive and initiate conversations with people. And these skills, you know, how to make someone, how to express romantic interest while making someone feel safe, those skills will serve you well the rest of your life. And I worry that with this kind of reasonable facsimile of life or reasonable facsimile of sex known as porn, that men lose their mojo and don't develop those skills and go down a rabbit hole where they become sort of unsalvageable, that they don't develop those skills. They get further and further reinforcement that they have no value or no attractiveness in the mating community. And they literally withdraw from society. And I think AI, unfortunately, is probably just going to make it worse. There's supposedly an AI girlfriend that is clocking millions of dollars a month and searches for AI girlfriend have exploded. And here's the thing. Romantic comedies are two hours, not 20 minutes for a reason. It is hard. It's hard to find someone. It's hard to engage in conversation. It's hard to get them to like you. It's hard to get them to kiss you. It's hard to get them to have sex with you. It's hard to maintain a relationship. And all of these things, when they happen at the end of the romantic comedy, which is two hours, not 20 minutes, are what it means to engage in victory. It's what it means to engage in life. It's what it means to hopefully use sex and affection as a means for establishing something deeper. So what would I tell or what would my advice to young men be? modulate your usage, don't have unreasonable expectations around what your partner is supposed to do sexually, and get out there, do what's required, get a plan, work out, make money, be friendly, endure rejection and realize that you're going to be okay and so are they, and keep at it, find someone to have a relationship with, and then make your own bad porn. Question number three. Hey, Scott. I am a huge fan of your work, and I appreciate you sharing your brilliant mind with the rest of us. Giovanni here. I'm a 32-year-old male living in New York City. I moved from Italy to New York about seven years ago and absolutely love it. I work in sales at a tech company where I am working and doing well on my path to financial security with a salary north of 300k. One question I'd love to ask you is about monogamy. You seem to be someone that lives a traditional monogamic lifestyle, but I am not sure I can be satisfied with it for myself as I lose sexual interest in partners quite fast. I am one of the lucky winners of the inequity of mating in this city, and I believe that influences me a lot as temptation is always lurking. My question is, as an amateur anthropologist, do you believe male homo sapiens are or can be monogamous? Something I should mention, this is an AI-generated voice as this is a quite personal topic for me to expose myself. Hope you understand. Uh, Giovanni, I am so glad and I knew that this was AI because you sound like a shit-eating talk show host and nobody wants to be around uh, whatever that is. Uh, anyways, but I appreciate your anonymity. Look, boss, it sounds like you're killing it. I'm not going to lecture you on monogamy. Um, if you're a young man enjoying the fruits of being a young, attractive man who's making a lot of money and is attractive to uh, women, you know, have at it. Um, recognize everything's a trade-off. Recognize that being single is awesome. I have a lot of single friends that live a life similar to the one you live, and they enjoy it. But be clear, it's a trade-off. Um, being in a monogamous relationship is got a lot of wonderful things about it, specifically the opportunity to build some together, having a partner. I think kids are wonderful, um, very stressful, but wonderful. 
and a feel that you're kind of building something, that you have someone who, you know, loves you for more than just kind of the transaction and will be there for you. I think the hard part about living the lifestyle you're leading is when you get a bit older and you don't want to be out every night. And for me, being out meant alcohol and kind of, there's a lot of effort. Being single is sort of like a job. And I found that once I got into a relationship or when I was in a monogamous relationship that my career did much better, that I economically was much better off, you know, not chasing the scene and chasing women all the time. It gave me the chance to focus on my professional life, have someone to download with, someone to, you know, relax with, someone to share your life with. There is something very um, rewarding about that. Having said that, everything's a trade-off. And you have to decide where you are in your life, your opportunity set, and what works for you, boss. I'm not going to lecture you on the benefits of monogamy. As a matter of fact, about 97% of mammals are not monogamous. Most of the research from evolutionary anthropologists indicates that humans are meant to be monogamous, but the wrinkle is we're meant to be serial monogamous. And that is we're meant to be with one person, but then we're supposed to swap that person out for another. Um, so actually, our natural state is to be married, but to be married more than one time, which I'm not suggesting. And by the way, it's very expensive to do that. So look, every situation is different. Um, what works for you may not work for someone else, but I'm not going to judge you. And if you're enjoying your life, what I would tell you is try to be thoughtful and considerate of other people's emotions and always be straight with them and make sure their expectations that you're not, you know, that you're being open and honest about what they're getting out of it and what you're getting out of it. And you might change as you get older. But this is, you know, monogamy is something that is kind of an age-old question in our society. I, I believe that monogamy is inversely correlated to your opportunity set. I think actors and athletes have a tough time because they have more opportunities. You know, the majority of men have, you know, that million years of instincts whispering in their, their ear that your job is to spread your seed to the four corners of the earth. And women's job is to put up a much finer filter to only let the strongest, smartest, and fastest seed get through such that the next generation is smarter uh, and faster and, and stronger than this generation. And that's a basic peanut butter and chocolate cocktail of evolutionary progress. But anyways, getting back to it, boss, this is a tough one. And if you're happy with where you are, then fine. Who, who gives a shit what the mores are around monogamy? If you're fine, then do it at some point. At some point, what I would hope for you is that you meet someone where you think it's kind of worth the trade-off, that I would like to be in a monogamous relationship with this person. And, uh, you know, I would wish that for you. I think that that ultimately usually leads to building some sense of one plus one equals three and a good relationship and having kids and a family, which I think as you get older is, is very rewarding. But until then, my brother, you know, enjoy yourself. That's all for this episode. If you'd like to submit a question, please email a voice recording to officehours at propgmedia.com. Again, that's officehours at propgmedia.com. 